you could see in very different, complex, interesting ways, people trying to find ways in which questions of the past can be restaged, literally restaged in the present as new questions. You know, people looking at the present and thinking, what can I yank from the past uh, and, and plonk in the present in a manner that makes it feel new? Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Kasemi. I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, Thinking Historically in the Present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and their SP15 project. Over the next half an hour, we're going to find out about the ideas behind their art and how their work speaks to our current time and place. Today, we have Jana Comfra joining us in Sharjah. Hello, John. Welcome to Biennial Bites. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. A little more about John and his work for our listeners. John's film-based practice experiments with the form of the moving image to delve into the political identities and cultural memories of migrant diasporas. His work reflects on urgent contemporary crises, engaging with themes of racial injustice, the aftereffects of colonial trauma, and more recently, environmental devastation. How does community memory function as a form of resistance? How is the social sphere linked to the ecological? What are the ways in which radical politics can be expressed in cinematic language? These are the questions that John's work asks us to think about. Let's hear more from the artist himself. So John, you were part of the 11th Sharjah Biennial in 2013. It was a very interesting uh, way that our lives and practices came together. I initially was uh, sent your work by Keith Shiri, a good friend of ours. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. In 2012, to the curator of Sharjah Biennial 11, Yuko Hasegawa. And since then, I saw the unfinished conversation at the Liverpool Biennial and Taipei Biennial. Mm -hmm. It made a lot of sense and was very important for us that uh, that work be included in Sharjah Biennial uh, 11 in 2013. But the interesting conversation and the interesting thing that happened was I was speaking to my late twin brother Khalid and he said, oh, um, my neighbor is in your biennial. And I said, your neighbor? I, I don't know who your neighbor is. And he said, yeah, John. John is in your biennial. So that was really a very beautiful and uh, serendipitous moment. Indeed. Actually, before I knew you as a curator or I knew you as a sister, you know, because Khalid was, uh, had a studio above mine and uh, I smoked quite a bit then and so did he. So we would meet outside having cigarettes and uh, he'd always talk about you. He said, oh, you should meet my sister. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a shock when all of it came together. When I finally got here with the unfinished conversation, realized that you were the sister that this guy who I'd known for four years as a kind of fellow smoker was talking about, you know. Um, but I think the other person who wants his conversation, of course, is Okwi. Yeah. He commissioned the second piece that I did after the unfinished conversation. And I think he asked you for money for it. Yeah. You know, so uh, since then, it's felt like our lives have been intertwined in a way not just your life and mine but mine with the place yeah with this country the first time i filmed it i thought actually this is perfect 
I remember when, when you were here, you were asking me about places to film in the desert. Mm. And I remembered saying, oh, I can show you many, many places to film, not just the desert. And that really started your research into this place. And since then, you've filmed two films, three, three films now, <laughs> sorry, three films now <laughs> three now. Uh, in, uh, in the UAE, in, in Sharjah and uh, um, the Northern Emirates. So it would be great if you could talk to us a bit more about that. There's a, a saying in, in kind of Ghana about how Sometimes when you meet a place, it welcomes you always like an old friend. And um, many places in Sharjah that I went to, and then Umokoen and Rasakema, every time I arrived somewhere, it felt strangely familiar, you know, like I'd been here before. Because I, I like to have conversations with landscapes. I like permissions. So I never, I don't have scripts or ideas, everything happens when we're here. You know, we go, we do a week of wandering around and somehow in that week, something happens. This place has a way of welcoming me and um, I don't want to sound too mystical about it. I don't want to, I don't want to overanalyze it. <laughs> I don't know why it happens, but I'm very glad that it does, you know. I'll encourage our listeners who've seen uh... African soldier and four nocturnes to see if they could spot any of the locations that they might know um, for a change. So to take it back to the biennial, Sharjah Biennial 15's theme is thinking historically in the present. So it's wonderful to welcome back artists with whom the biennial itself has had a history and to see how their practice responds to the present. John, you come from an activist background straddling two nations. Your parents were deeply involved in Ghana's anti-colonial struggle, and you were involved in political agitation yourself as a young student in Britain. Can you talk about how activism informed your artistic practice? I remember the late 70s, having these endless conversations with my mom about the difficulties of being young and black in Britain. And, you know, her advice always was, well, you know, you guys have got to show what we did. You know, I, mean, I think the only thing that connects the two things is being told by an activist parent that in order to get what you want, you might have to turn into an activist yourself. You know, growing up in, in England in the 70s had very specific historical resonances. One of which was that I was part of the first generation of people who were basically born in the country. You know, in between 1949 and uh, uh, 69, waves of people come across from the Caribbean, from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people come. But they came initially as workers, as individuals. And then between 57, when I was born... <laughs> At 67, all these kids are born. I'm part of that group, first group of kids born in our country in the post-war period from parents who migrated there. And uh, neither the culture, um, the people, the politics was prepared for us. No one knew what to do with us. You know, it's like, well, okay, we knew their parents as workers, but you should be kids. You know, what are we supposed to, you know, so you had to really fight for the right to be seen as a legitimate group inside that culture. Um, and everything grew from that. You know what I mean? It's like 
you know, when I went to, to college, um, everybody who I set up the collective with, Black Audio Film Collective with in 82, I met in 79. And I think all of us realized pretty much at the same time, like, okay, when we leave, it's going to be really tough on our own as individuals. And so we might just need to come together as a group in order to just be able to work, you know. Um, so the activism wasn't something separate from the art practice. In a way, it's the realization that, that you needed the activism to license the art practice. You know, I don't see my life as uh, divided into discrete categories that includes, on the one hand, activism here and then politics here and art practice. You know, they, they're not as separated. At the same time, and this is a difficulty because one of the difficulties in the 80s and 90s was that because you said that, people assumed that there was no autonomy to your practice. It's like, oh, well, it's just politics, isn't it? And you have to persuade that pe- that group that, no, this isn't just politics. <laughs> we're not making politics, we're making art, right? Um, but the political was important in situating it, in orientating it, but it's not making politics, you know? And so this, this third space in which activism and political practice engineered things but didn't determine them was really important. And in a way, it's kind of what's behind Okwi's title. Yes. (laughs) And also your work about Stuart Hall and and visual culture. You mentioned um, Black Audio Film Collective. Could you talk more about that journey, what it's been like for you? Yeah, yeah. It's it's an unfinished conversation. (laughs) Because I worked with seven other students to set up the collective. I'm still working with two of those doesn't feel like it's finished. It doesn't feel like it's over, put it that way. Um, but formally, Black Audio as a, an arts collective, uh, making films, tapes, lies, music, installations, went from 82 to 97. And by 97, we had honestly run out of steam. (laughs) We'd run out of money, we'd run out of space, you know, and also a moment when collective practice was seen as legitimate had gone, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was just tough in the 90s to make make things work. And um, apart from anything else, we met also when we were like in our 20s, very, very early 20s. Some of us weren't even 20 yet, you know, and so by the late 90s, you know, people start to have their own interests, you know, separate from their group ones. And it just seemed best to, to, mm-hmm. to disband it then. But, you know, the afterlives of it still informs what I do. I still work with at least four people f- from the collective even now, you know. Um, but as, as a group, it's gone. Yeah, it ceased to exist in 97. But referenced a lot still. With all the work yeah, that you've done. That surprises me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> surprises me immensely because it didn't feel very popular at all. <laughs> well, we're thinking historically in the present. Indeed. So the way in which you incorporate histories of events, characters and landscapes certainly gives your work an immersive depth. I want to ask you about your work with archives. How do you navigate the use of archival material in your films? Uh, what's characterized as the archival has taken on many forms in in the work. I mean, I think initially when we started, uh, 
there was always a kind of eureka moment when you found a reference to to someone who was like you in the in the British archive. You know, I mean, text. You know, to find that there was a, a person of color in in England in 1890. We're like, whoa, whoa, there was somebody like me before. <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, the early archival stuff, which led to the first tape slides that we did in the 80s, were characterized by that kind of innocence and naivety. We were just simply looking for a way of situating ourselves in, in, um, in the soil, in British soil, if you like. But since then, it's taken on many forms. I mean, I'm as interested in, in the archival as gesture, as traces of speech as uh, sonic artifacts as I am in, you know, um, newsreels. Once you start working with official archival material, you realize that there's also an unofficial inventory. And I've become much more interested in that. I've become much more interested in, in the ways in which costumes or hairstyles or patterns of speech become embodiments of the archival, you know, um, and that's why so many of the films have been costume dramas, because I'm interested in the ways in which you can get those things to stand in uh, for the past in, in some ways. For progressive practices, whether they're aesthetic or political, the need to reinvent form and the need to reinvent the constituent parts of the form needs to, to, to change, you know. Otherwise, it just becomes a kind of parody of itself. So we've tried to, I've tried to kind of look for other vestiges of the archival, you know, to use, if that makes any sense. Yeah, makes sense completely. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with artist John Akamfra about his project for the 15th Raja Biennial. So, John, let's fill our listeners in on your SB15 project and exhibits. All of these works are new, by the way. You've made a multi-screen installation for us called Arcadia, which incorporates indigenous narratives to tackle the violence of colonialism and capitalism, as well as the extinction of microorganisms. You also have a five-channel video called Becoming Wind that depicts the decline of the Garden of Eden as a metaphor for climate change. And finally, there's a series of uh, photographs called Wounding Light that continues your interest in the interplay between landscape photography and historical paintings. Pretty good. (laughs) Yep, that sounds like me. (laughs) So, John, you have three very different seeming works on view here at Sharjah, almost a mini survey exhibition. But there's a connecting thread between them, that of ecological destruction. Over the past decade, this has emerged as a central idea in your work. Can you explain why? I think part of the strand of the Black Audio ambition was to always find ways in which, you know, questions of the environmental could be connected with the racial. Because the thing which most people forget is that the colonial project wasn't just about people. It was, about, it was about land, it was about space, it was about uh, the temporal. So when you became a colonial subject in the 17th century, you weren't just being annexed as a subject, 
the space in which you lived was being annexed, the plants, animals, everything around you was being annexed, was being owned, quote unquote, by the, the force from elsewhere. But crucially, you're also being ordered, reordered in temporal term. So you have to live in a certain kind of time now, you know, temporal disjunctions of the colonial encounter, the, the eco side of colonial, were always sort of interests, if you like. When you showed me the organizing document <laughs> for this, it felt, it felt like the, the moment to return to that again in a slightly different way, though. I was, I was fascinated reading recently about the extent of the ecological devastation across the so-called new world brought about not so much by colonial violence, but by the viral encounters, you know, in the first contact between Europeans and, and their others, you know, I mean, more people died from measles and smallpox and, than they did from being shot or forced to work, you know? Um, so that was the opening premise for Arcadia. It's about trying to see whether we can situate the, the initial contact in viral terms, to put it crudely, you know, uh, whether we can find a way of coming at this question of um, the beginnings of modernity through different lenses. Um, and the different lens in this case happens to be the, the bacterial and the viral. So those are kind of important considerations for me. We see different kinds of visuals, sea mm -hmm. creatures, boats, microorganisms, and colonists across five enormous screens. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the process of shooting some of the footage in Sharjah and Scotland and the choices behind the imagery that we see? And of course, the, the way the screens are laid out on the wall. You know, the thing which is really important to remember is that um, what you're seeing is, is what I see for the first time, because there's no way... You know, if you're a painter, you get to see the painting, you know, but when you're, when you make time-based work on that scale, the only time you get to see it is when it's up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, yes. So I'm just as surprised by it as many people are. And uh, you have to then try and design systems um, whilst you're putting it together that gives you a sense of, of what it's going to be. And the one that seemed appropriate was this sort of crucifix-like structure. Um, triptychs always suggest a kind of conversation, you know, and I didn't want this to be a conversation. I wanted it to be a display. Mm -hmm. Six images felt just too excessive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so we ended up with the five as a way of suggesting an intersection that lay somewhere between conversation and display if you like. And that's important because that came before the works themselves. And, you know, I had a sense of the form before I knew what was going to go in it. In most of the work that I've done in the last five years, I'm always usually happy if I can do two landscapes that I'm very, very close to. Scotland and, and of course, the UAE, you know, principally Sharjah and Russell came. So I, I did usually what we would do. <laughs> roam around Scotland for two weeks and um, the top of Scotland I suddenly thought okay I can I can see this as a place of departure I can see this as a place where uh, the viral is incubated if you like I can see this as a place of germination um, right and so the question then was can we find spaces 
that talked to the Scottish ones. The Scottish ones were always usually spaces of, of desolation and isolation of the ruin, right? Um, usually that's what I come to the UAE for vestiges of the ruin. But this time I thought, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do the UAE as a place of growth, <laughs> as a place of energy and a certain kind of epicness, you know? Um, and slowly doing it that way, things start to emerge. It wasn't going to be my usual storytelling. <laughs> I wanted things to be more in your face, uh, more well, to, to display the mechanisms by which things have been made, you know. And the first time we arrived on the set, I realized that, of course, what happens is that I have this army of people and they carry shit everywhere, you know. Um, but normally that, that doesn't get shown because, of course, you always show the perfect. And it just felt right that we should start showing, displaying the mechanisms by which this work is so Brechtian in that sense, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I knew that. And I also kind of felt like it needed a certain kind of theatricality, which uses characters, not necessarily as actors, but almost as, yeah, I mean, as um, pawns in the drama, not of their making, you know, or of anyone's making. So, so none, no one in Arcadia had a script or an idea until they arrived on the day. Um, and we would normally talk about either the stuff you're not supposed to do when you make films, you know, exploitation, <laughs> alienation, blah, blah, blah. Like I could see them all sitting there thinking, when is he going to tell us what to do? <laughs> like, I was spouting all these Marxist gobbledygook. <laughs> and then at the end of it, I'd say, okay, what would you like to do? And slowly things would, a dramaturgy would emerge. You know, okay. I'd like to care or maybe we should do this. And slowly we would, as a group, devise a kind of theater of the oppressed. Okay. <laughs> it's basically having fun involving the uh, participants in the drama. So more of a collaborative process. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, the process is, is one that you're defining as you yeah. go along, you know. Um, of course, what that means is that at the end, I have this stuff that I've got to make sense of, <laughs> you know, which is always tough. But, you know, yeah, I hope it works for people. I just hope it works. Thank you for taking us through your process, John. So with regard to your other work exhibited in the biennial, Becoming Wind, there's this concept of Eden, a garden that is paradise from which humans are expelled. It's such a powerful tale for holding up a mirror to current times as humans destroy nature, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Becoming Wind is sort of a continuation of um, a project that I started uh, during the lockdowns. Um, so it's almost like a second part to Five Memorations. Um, and I never go out of my way to shoot them. I, you know, I don't, I don't consider the practice a photographic one, but... Usually when we get to these places, you know, um, they make suggestions and some of those suggestions are either, you know, quote unquote cinematic. It says, you know, I can be accessed this way using this kind of camera. Um, and sometimes they say, well, I can be framed in a slightly different way. You know, um, I don't know. It's like standing just over the mountains of, um, on the hills of Russell came when you suddenly think, okay, 
if a person is standing there, this is really a good image, you know. Um, and and the photographic works that end up in the show are usually that. They're quite impulsive. I mean, I carry around a camera anyway, but I don't go out of my way to find things. Somehow, landscapes always suggest that, you know. Um, I'm interested in the question of the temporal, um, the ways in which light behaves at certain times, but also how landscapes behave at certain times. And so times, light, space, somehow start to intersect uh, at certain moments in these projects. And, and a set of photographs emerge. So you, you're in a way looking at diary entries or sketches or, I, I mean, I don't know what to call them. <laughs> they're, they're certainly not, you know, they're not photographs in that traditional sense. One of the kind of uh, trenodies or threnodies or motifs in Becoming Wind is the phrase, the thing to come being repeated again and again and again. And, and partly why is that both in, in, in terms of racialization, but also in environmental collapse, the thing which is important is that is the thing to come. Uh, the thing that frightens most of us, most people of color, is is that Fanonian encounter when the confirmation happens. Oh, it's this thing to come, which struck me as being actually very similar to the mechanisms by which disasters play out in our lives you know, um, environmental or otherwise. So I just wanted to play with those two things a little bit when it comes to questions of environmental collapse and race, pretty much mirror each other in a weird sort of way, you know, um, and both have a, at their heart a kind of Eden at the, at the heart of it. You know, like when you speak to, uh, the thing that used to fascinate me with my parents' generation was that they had a, they had an outside to being colored. You know, my mom would say, oh, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know I was black till I came here. I was, I was an African or I wasn't even an African. I was a Ghanaian. Then I came to this stupid country and I became black. <laughs> you know, so there's always this kind of Edenic space in which, you know, the, the subject, the racialized subject is thrown out of into this hostility of naming you in racial terms, you know. Um, so yeah, that's that's the that's the Eden uh, that I'm playing with. It's also the same Edenic um, imaginary that haunts environmental discourse, of course. You know, because um, everybody remembers the moment before you know the sewage went into all the rivers in England. Everyone remembers the moment when you could drink the water before it became polluted, or swim in it, or you know, it's like there's there's a moment in the imaginary of um, activism that has to see uh, a place before the fall. So yeah, that's all of those things are what I'm sort of playing with, if that makes any sense. So it's, it's interesting because like with your earlier work, such as Vertigo Sea, Wounded Light stages contemporary landscapes in a way that recall old paintings. Mm. I was just thinking about how much this speaks to the biennial's theme of thinking historically in the present. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, um, it's a very suggestive title, one. And you could see in very different, complex, 
interesting ways, people trying to find ways in which questions of the past can be restaged, literally restaged in the present as new questions. You know, people looking at the present and thinking, what can I yank from the past uh, and, and plonk in the present in a manner that makes it feel new? Both the thing in the present as well as the present itself. The Oki's title was really suggestive, but more importantly, and this is the this is the great thing, the ways in which things have been curated here, right, gives weight and authority and credibility to the title. Everything feels as if it has a connection with each other. You know, it's a fundamental shift in taking seriously the curatorial undertow for shows. I've really learned a lot here. I think it was a huge weight on my shoulders to be seen curating Oki's show. Mm. And I realized later that I wasn't here to curate his show, but mm. really to take everything that I've learned from the process and from his work mm. and do something that was a homage to him. So I really wanted to make sure that we did the best job possible. Of course, it's it's a team effort. Um, but since, you know, we're talking about Okui and the title that I'm very thankful for this biennial, it's really opened my eyes as well. Would you like to share any memories of Okui? I wish he was here to see this. And I know how important Okui was and how important that documentary that he did was for your, you know, evolution formation. You know, someone who's how the age you were then can have the same experience of that documentary that you did from your show. You know, you don't have to go to documenta to get a sense of what is possible, you know, in our world. You don't have to go to documenta or, or Venice to see your world made both beautifully strange and strangely beautiful. <laughs> I think for me, the greatest thing has been the reaction of the artists as well, seeing each other's works mm -hmm. and artists who are meeting um, artists they look up to for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, so different generations was very important, but also the team that I worked with as well and them seeing it all happening because they're all working in isolation on different projects and their reaction to seeing how it all came together. So for me, it's really, these are the, the important moments that I, I've I agree. Well done. Bravo. Thank you, John. And thank you for joining us on Biennial Bites. And thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series. To view John's work online, click on the link in the show notes. To see them in person, please visit the galleries in Almoreja Square. We look forward to seeing you there. For more of these chats with artists from around the world, subscribe to Sharjah Art Foundation's channel wherever you get your podcasts. For updates about the ongoing Sharjah Biennial, follow us on Instagram at Sharjah Art. <laughs>